0: Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forsees. I am here socially distanced over Zoom from Stephanie Carvin. And Stephanie, it's been a while since we did a podcast. Why? Because things happened. And so this is a reboot.
1: What yes. are we doing? <laughs> Um, I'm living in my parents basement now is what I'm doing <laughs> that's, that's that's the new world order but what we're doing today is we're having a bit of a comeback uh, season I think we're now calling this season four and we decided to kick it off with a discussion of diversity in the national security intelligence community and there's a number of reasons for that first of all I think with uh, given recent events uh, beyond the coronavirus this is on the forefront of, of everyone's mind uh, how our national National security organizations are actually operating in this space and secondly because it was also the subject of a theme of the 2019 national security committee of parliamentarians or nz or nsi i think we still fight about what to call it um their report did a, a the first multi-agency deep dive of what diversity looks like in this community and you and i today i think we want to really talk with the authors of that report or some of the authors of that report on the strengths uh, and and weaknesses and kind of uh, ask some questions about what they found and what still needs to be done.
0: Yeah, and and in fact, we're going to try to run this as a series. So we'll start with our guests from the committee, but we're also going to bring in some guests from the security and intelligence community uh, who will offer their views on this question. And and you and I were discussing earlier that there are really two hypotheses that we want to test or questions that we want to ask of our guests over the course of the series. We really want to test the, the question, why diversity in the security and intelligence community? And, and I think there are, there are two answers that you and I have given over the course of past episodes of this podcast and elsewhere. The first is the ethical one. That is, as a matter of principle, a security and intelligence organization should reflect the society in which it operates. And also then there's also the question of efficacy. As a matter of efficacy, a security intelligence organization is better in what it does. It's more competent in what it does if it embraces diversity and reflects the society in which it operates. And so it's those two hypotheses that we really want to explore, along with some of the nitty-gritty and details, both from the NZCOP report and then from the lived experience of our other guests over the course of this series. Now, beyond that, beyond the, our series on diversity, Stephanie, we were thinking about doing some other things in season four.
1: Right, we're gonna we're gonna actually start doing a little bit more in deep diving. Given the the kind of world, uh, let's go with chaos happening right now, we want to take the time to step back and look at the building blocks of what national security law and policy are really built on. So we're gonna. I'm really excited about this. We're going to do a series on the Charter with Carissa Mathen, which I think builds very nicely off of our Her Majesty and Right of Pod series, as well as my hope is that we're also going to be able to do a deep dive of the major national security law cases that we've seen in uh, recent years, really over the past kind of two decades, and kind of then explore the relationship between the Charter, national security, and these decisions, and how they shape actually much of the dilemmas that we talk about on this podcast regularly.
0: Yeah, so we have a a lot of big plans for season four, and and we'll see how it goes. Uh, Season three didn't end exactly how we anticipated. Uh, It did not,
1: No. (laughs)
0: We're hoping that season four is not quite as truncated. So uh, and
1: with- also hoping there's like at least you know, 100% less virus.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And so without further ado, let's turn to our first in our diversity series. And we'd like to welcome to the podcast members of the National Security and Intelligence Community of Parliamentarians. And we'll ask each of them to say hello.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm David McGinty. I'm the Member of Parliament for Ottawa South, and I'm the Chair of Canada's National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians.
3: Good morning. I'm Rennie Markou. I'm the Executive Director of the Secretariat to the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Hi, I'm Stephanie
4: Lissot-Farmer, and I'm an analyst with the Secretariat of the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians.
0: Well, thanks very much, everyone, and thank you for joining us on a podcast called Intrepid. We really wanted to talk a little bit about your annual report from 2019 and one of the studies that you conducted for that annual report, namely the question of diversity in the security and intelligence area. Maybe I can start by asking you, David, what prompted this assessment by your committee? Why this
2: focus? Well, we began by taking a snapshot in time of what Canada is and who we are now as a people. It's not that Canada's changing. Canada is changed. And so we set out in the very front of the report some basic uh, data that everyday Canadians can understand. Two thirds of all population growth is now immigration. The Aboriginal population is growing four times as fast as the non-Aboriginal population. 22% of people 15 years of age and over have a disability. Up to 13% of people dis- dis- describe themselves or self-identify as LGBT. So the members of the committee wanted to see how well this reality of Canadian society was being reflected in the SNI community. So we began uh, digging in, and then the more we looked at this uh, Craig and Stephanie, the more we uh, became concerned. Uh, and as we always do with our work, we began looking at some of the uh, analytical work that had been done, and we began seeing very important work coming out of, for example, the Boston Consulting Group, work that was done by a university in Berlin. And then we started looking uh, comparatively at what other organizations were doing. And the more we looked, the more we, we saw a connection between diversity and inclusion and performance. In this, in the SNI community.
0: So, on that question of diversity, what did you mean by
2: diversity? Uh, how are you defining diversity for purposes of your study? Well, it's right up front again uh, in paragraph eleven of the chapter. There are two core values that are defined by the government: quote, a diverse workforce in the public services, made up of individuals who have an array of identities, abilities, backgrounds, cultures skills, perspectives, and experiences that are representative of Canada's current and evolving population. And we go on to define what an inclusive workforce looks like as well, which is a fair, equitable, supportive, welcoming, and respectful one. So we lay this all out at the very front end of the report so folks can get a very good idea of what these things mean.
3: So just to add to uh, what the chair said, so at the beginning of the year when the committee was discussing its work plan, We had just finished a series of briefings with the the different organizations in the security intelligence community, and the issue of diversity of talent, recruitment, workplace culture, all of that came up during our presentations. And so committee members were seized with that, and we had also just met with the Intelligence and Security Committee the f- a previous fall, and they had talked about their report on diversity and inclusion in the UK community. So I think all of that as well contributed to the committee's interest in conducting a study. This review was interesting in the sense that it wasn't the traditional sort of core security operational type of information or subject that we would, that we've looked at in our other reviews. And it brought us into contact as well with people who aren't necessarily in the security intelligence community. We talked to the head or some representatives of the Federal Public Service, the Black Caucus. We talked to uh, Treasury Board folks. And so in a way, it was quite interesting for us. We got a lot of questions from the security and intelligence community about whether or not this was part of our mandate. So we had to explain, yes, that administrative framework is indeed part of our mandate. Anyway, it was an interesting, and because of all the data as well, we're not statisticians. So I think Stephanie did a great job on this one.
4: I would just add uh, two things, and and this might get to the question on defining diversity, so I might be getting ahead of myself. But So first of all, um, in addition to all the reasons that Rennie and, and the chair have just mentioned, we also highlight sort of areas of basically problems that have already been identified through class action lawsuits in organizations like the Canadian Armed Forces, the RCMP, and at CSIS. So in addition to the, the value of diversity and inclusion, we also mentioned that there have been previously identified issues with regards to those two questions within the security intelligence community, which I think also was played a role in the decision to conduct the review. And then second of all, um, in terms of your question about a diverse workforce and sort of what that means, I also think it's important to mention that we, we really focused on the Employment Equity Act throughout this report. And so we also more narrowly defined diversity as being the four designated groups within the Employment Equity Act. So diversity can mean a lot of things and can encompass a lot of people, but we really focused on the four designated groups under the Employment Equity Act.
0: And to be clear, those are women, Aboriginal peoples, persons with disabilities, and members of visible minorities. Is that correct? Yes, correct. And so sexual orientation was, was not amongst aspects that you studied in your empirical analysis?
4: No, and the reason for that is that because they're not under the Employment Equity Act, there is no data on the representation of that group within the federal public service in general.
1: So, just building off that it is an interesting I- exclusion. I understand why it was made for for data purposes, but sexual orientation has been one of perhaps the national securities community 's largest historical failings. You think of uh, the number of individuals who lost their job over time because uh, of who they were and who they loved, as well as you know there there's been very famous cases of of even diplomats uh, actually dying uh, after being interrogated about their sexuality uh, in in You know, over national security concerns. So, I'm wondering do Do you think that this is a a failing? Is this something that the community should be paying attention to right now? I'd just be curious uh, your comments on that.
2: David well we do we do actually note and i want to underline this here as stephanie that given the legacy of uh, discrimination against this group as you just alluded to in this in the I S&I community their potential designation under the employment equity act is going to be an important issue for those organizations to address going forward and so we we weren't able to capture it beyond where we went because it's not there so we're hopeful that raising the profile of this will lead to changes in this regard and you're right to point out this is something that we did here in some of our work. And this ultimately goes back to uh, the, the opening question, which is, why did we do this? And we did it, uh, maybe to say it a bit more directly. We did it because we wanted to make sure, as a committee that, that Canada was getting its best. It's, it, was, it was drawing on all the talent inherent in the population. When we looked at the United States, when we looked at Australia, the U.K., the CIA, some of the work and, and the analysis at CSs. We saw that this did speak to both an ethical and an efficacy question. And the other thing, the reason we did it, the second reason was because we immediately came across problems. We saw that there were systemic problems in the, in the way in which diversity and inclusion was being measured. It was being reported on. And then the other big reason we did it, because it's one of ENSECOP's major metrics to choose to conduct a review or not, is it had never been done before. So we thought this is a pretty groundbreaking, important moment for us. So the committee rallied, and that's what led to this, uh, to this review.
0: Can I ask a follow-up then, David, on, on the issue of uh, efficacy and ethics? Uh, what struck me is paragraph 102 of your report, for those who are following along at home. Building diverse and inclusive workforces is essential to the effectiveness of the security and intelligence community. It is imperative that organizations charged with the responsibility to defend Canada and protect Canadians leverage the skills, talent, and perspectives of individuals of different genders, abilities, and racial, ethnic, cultural, and religious backgrounds. And then you say that belief is well-founded in academic and professional studies. Can you amplify that observation? Because it really goes to the heart of why, on an efficacy basis, we should care about diversity and inclusion.
2: Well, the report, I think, and Stephanie Le Farmer is in, in perhaps the best position, Randy can add as well, in terms of the essential evidence points that we touch on throughout the report. But we know linguistic skills, cultural backgrounds, faith backgrounds, identity questions, these are all really important because they're highly reflective of Canadian society. And so if the SNI community wants to be more effective, it's, it's got to have people that not only reflect, our real population, but also understand it innately, better connected to it. That fosters trust. It 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 engenders a culture of trust and a uh, an approach to cultivating relationships that the S and I we think would benefit from.
4: I agree with with everything you've said, uh, Mr. McGinty. I would also add that I think that in the same way that security and intelligence organizations need to have the cultural competencies. To work with communities of different backgrounds in Canada, they also, in some cases, like the RCMP, are responsible for direct frontline work with these communities. And so organizations that are representative of those communities perhaps are important in how you can deal with these communities on a a, a person-to-person basis. So there's a lot of really important reasons why diversity is important both both in terms of sort of instrumental interpretations which is on language skills but also just the normative value that fundamentally the best pool of candidates will be diverse the best pool of candidates will never be fully homogenous and so in order to get the best talent you need to be recruiting from the broadest pool
0: and so, if, to tease apart those, there's an element of social license in terms of the credibility, but also fundamentally, there's an, a question of competence that the agencies will be more competent if they're able to tap into this range of experience that is a, a product of diversity. Stephanie.
1: My question is just kind of following up on that. So I'm involved in a project right now with, um, you know, one of our intrepid podcast friends and editors, Tomas, you and we had the opportunity to interview about 70 people in mostly in the Canadian national security context, but we, we spoke to uh, other uh, allied nations as well. And I mean, we didn't specifically ask about diversity. We were asking about hiring practices, but diversity came up quite a bit. And, uh, but, you know, when we kind of started digging down into the data, one of the things I realized is that when these organizations were talking about diversity, they were talking about diversity of experience rather than diversity of representation. And I guess one of the... Uh, One of the concerns I have when when I see some of these reports is that we're automatically linking these two ideas, that um, representation um, and experience are are linked in in certain ways. I think that there may be an assumption there, but also that uh, when the security communities are talking about diversity, they're not necessarily talking about representation. They're talking about people who've, who've just kind of lived different lives. And we shouldn't assume that automatically means that they're, they're going to be recruiting from a, a, a pool with kind of um, diverse representation in it. So I'm wondering, um, are you confident that when you spoke to these organizations, when they were talking about diversity, they were actually talking about representation? And as well, do you think it's appropriate to link the idea of experience and representation
3: as well? It's a big question. So first of all, I should state that the committee didn't hold hearings with security and intelligence officials. We did mostly a paper-based analysis of the material they provided to us and that we requested, and then interviews with academics and other professionals. Secondly, one of the things we did find, and it's I think it's one of the findings and recommendations as well, is that there's certain levels in the the agencies where the importance and acknowledgement of the importance of diversity and inclusion isn't accepted throughout the organizations. And that accountability for those two concepts needed to be not just lie with the human resources uh, departments or branches of those organizations, but throughout the different levels of management. So in a sense, I think I'm answering your, your question, Stephanie, that when people think of diversity, they don't necessarily think of diversity in the sense of what the government and the public, the two, those two uh, values of the public service are talking about. So
1: if I could, if I could just follow up on that, um, do you think that we need to have maybe a broader discussion of, of what this yes. means? I was kind of taking it back when I looked at the data and I realized, so well, you can have a variety of people who have diverse experiences, but they all may be white, or they all may come from predominantly one ethnic group. So as Renny just said, the idea that when people speak about diversity, they don't necessarily mean what is, say, in the government documentation.
2: I, I'd like to try to maybe answer that question. You know, Stephanie, I think you posed it really bang on. Should we make an automatic link between representation and experience? No, we can't. Uh, what we found as we disaggregated what was going on in the federal system was there's a huge amount of work to be done, an enormous opportunity to make progress, but it is a work in progress. And we've looked at it, as I've often said in this in, in the work at NSACOP, and I said it, I think, on the last podcast, we're not we're never afraid to get into the engine room at NSICOP. And we, we took it all apart best we could. We pushed and pushed for data and information. In some cases, we weren't getting the data and information that we required. We took a look at what the Prime Minister's initiative looked like and how, how well that was doing. We took a look at what was going on in different member organizations of the community. And that discussion and debate is exactly what we were hoping to engender uh, through this report. And at the same time, give us a, a baseline to be able to revisit in, in several years, perhaps three to five years, to say, okay, we took a snapshot in time. This is what we saw and heard last time from you. And now we, we want to take another hard look, an examination and uh, as a committee report back to Canadians and report to the government. So I think that question is spot on. We haven't been able to uh, definitively answer it. But many data points that Stephanie Lusso Farmer can speak to in more detail will, I think, help us help us track progress, help us track progress, because we know that we can do better.
4: Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an excellent question. And I think that What we really found in this review, and Renny alluded to it, was that the question of diversity understood in these organizations was very much related to the Employment Equity Act. And so it really was understood as being those four categories, and that work being done to increase diversity was on the basis of the Employment Equity Act. So I think that the way a lot of these organizations understood diversity was through the lens of the Employment Equity Act. And when we in the secretariat spoke with the organizations in question, some of them, we didn't speak to all of them, we spoke primarily to their human resources departments. So discussions around sort of broader understandings of what is diversity, from my experience doing this review, were not really being had. It was really about the Employment Equity Act and those four designated groups. There were questions around how how the Employment Equity Act might change in the future and who might be included under the act going forward. But the question of representation versus experience, I think, was not one that was being discussed at any level in the organizations in question.
0: So let me follow up with that point, the point that, that you just made, Stephanie, and, and a point you made a few moments ago, Rennie, about the depth of internalization of this question of diversity within the organizations, and you have a section in your report on organizational buy-in, and you note that at the senior leadership level, there is a significant recognition of the importance of a diverse workforce, although you also say that diversity, inclusion at executive and managerial levels is limited. But then in paragraph 72, you talk about the problems of buy-in at a lower level, at an intermediate level, and the extent to which that's been internalized. And Maybe I'll just share that paragraph with our listeners. Research shows that while leadership commitment to diversity is important, ensuring that employees at all levels of the organization understand and accept the value of diversity is critical to the success of any initiatives, particularly at middle management levels. However, misunderstandings about diversity and inclusion goals and even resistance to their implementation persist. Can one of you amplify that concern? I think what
4: we mean here, and this is what we heard through conversations with different representatives of organizations, but also what we found through what are called employment systems reviews, which are reviews that different organizations conduct to evaluate sort of barriers within embedded in, in their policies and practices within their own workforce. And what we found was that either there was active resistance to the concept of diversity, and this is particularly at the RCMP and the Canadian Armed Forces, where it, wasn't, it was understood to be essentially not a positive thing. To increase diversity was not a net positive for an organization. And what we found in other organizations that I thought was interesting was not so much a resistance, but a lack of understanding of the value of diversity. So we categorize that also into this concept of organizational buy-in because we think it's important that in order to really get diversity initiatives through an organization, people need to understand why it matters. and. In many organizations, it was clear that that wasn't something that was being communicated, or perhaps it was the organizations were trying to communicate it, but it wasn't widely understood across the organizations.
0: So, would it be fair to say that the hypothesis that we started with, that there was an efficacy benefit to diversity, in part because this is this debate that, Stephanie Carvin, you've engaged, that there's a possibility that diversity means experiential variability, and that that, that that hypothesis has not been either tested or that the results have not been properly disseminated to the people in the security intelligence community, such that there's sort of a more systemic buy-in. Is that is that a fair observation from your report?
4: I mean, to give certain examples, some organizations, I think we mentioned CSE in particular, has actually done a lot of work in terms of sort of, I would say, public awareness campaigns within their organizations. They've created products that they can distribute through the organization, demonstrating that they have staff of diverse backgrounds and telling their stories. and. I think there's been a lot of effort in some organizations to promote the idea of diversity and try to demonstrate its value. I think that what we found and in, in what we've read in our conversations is that it's not yet a completely understood concept throughout all of these organizations. But I do think that there has been effort by many of these organizations to promote this idea and the value of it.
2: Can I just add to that, Craig? I think that uh, what Stephanie sole Farmer just Hit on is fundamental to the report, part two of our report, which looked at okay. So, what are organizations doing? What what efforts are they making now to promote diversity and foster inclusion? How are they doing it? And we came upon upon a, a hodgepodge of efforts that were difficult to evaluate. They were difficult to compare between organizations and agencies. So, we know, for example, that we found out that the extent to which responsibility for diversity is spread across an organization. Oftentimes, if you're walking around with a divining rod trying to find out where it ended, uh, where was the water, it ended up being parked over in the human resources side of the organization, that it wasn't necessarily mainstreamed amongst managers uh, who had deliverables and measurables and outcomes to report on. Uh, we looked at the PM's uh, Tiger Team creation and whether that was working and whether that was taking hold. And they hadn't met for, and they still haven't met since July 2018. And so there were shortcomings on that front. And then we looked at weaknesses in measuring and tracking amongst organization, amongst the organizations, whether it was inside or between them. And so what we, what we've revealed here is the st- status quo. And uh, we really think that there's room for progress and we can up our game and we, need, we felt we needed to disaggregate what was going on amongst the whole of the SNI community and to represent that accurately for people to read as it is that we think in the report and then move on from there and, and hopefully make progress.
1: So I'm listening to what you're saying, and I, I agree with you fundamentally. I think that you know the Canadian government, particularly the Canadian national security agencies, needs to look like the communities that it represents and works for. I, I I'd be hard pressed to find I think many academics that would uh, think differently. I suppose my question though is you know. I don't think we can have this conversation without the kind of thinking about the wider context in, in which we're holding it, which is, of course, uh, the Black Lives Matter protest and a lot of the concerns we have seen about uh, policing at a different levels of governments. And I also appreciate that you guys are looking at national security, which is, of course, different from federal policing. Although CBSA, RCMP, you know, even in their national security functions are involved in a kind of policing and law enforcement function. And I guess my concern is that what I'm hearing from the protesters is not complaints about diversity, right? The, there's concerns that these organizations have a kind of structural racism in them. And in fact, we have heard from the, these organizations themselves, particularly two of the ones that were just mentioned, CAF and the RCMP, that there is structural racism in them and that they have to work to keep finding it. So I guess my concern is that it's, it's, it's not so much the diversity in these organizations, but the fact is that it's their interactions with racialized communities. It's their interactions with um, uh, minority communities that you know, people have expressed concerns about. And, and we have seen footage to that effect recently as a part of these protests and as Canadians are increasingly becoming outraged rightfully so in my view, about, about the, how these organizations are handling themselves. So I guess the question is, if the concern is that these organizations, there may be structural racism in them, and in fact that they, they are saying as much, diversity in and of itself is not going to fix this. So I guess what I would ask is, I think diversity within these organizations is probably a piece of this, but what is the next level? Like, would you guys consider looking at things like training? It's not just the fact that you are a person of color or a sexual minority that are in these organizations that's going to make a difference. There has to be something else. As well, And I appreciate that, that goes beyond the report. But if we're talking about the efficacy of the community generally, within this kind of broad context of diversity within Canada, so I just think, still think there's a bit of a missing piece here. And, and I appreciate that this is going beyond the report that you guys sought to write.
2: Well, let me maybe take a stab at that, Stephanie. First of all, that's what you've just raised is like more than profoundly important. It's something we've been agonizing over since the report. Well, since, the, since things really have surfaced in Canada and around the world in the way that they have. I just want to remind listeners, as as you know very well, we are a review body, so we look back, and the timelines and the methodology in this particular uh, review was between January 2015 and March 31st 2018. We need to have, you know, some. Temporal limitations on what we can uh, ex- examine, because you know, the, <laughs> just in terms of the documentation, over five, five, six thousand pages of documentation and departmental performance reports and so on and so forth was gone through with research, etc. So, but nothing precludes cop so as a committee from building on what we've done and and, and pot- potentially, possibly, I can't speak for the. Committee, I, I can't, we need to examine this in terms of next steps. But nothing precludes the committee from looking back in the review function and examining some of these questions you've just raised. Now it's, we know that some groups are doing some organizations are doing better than others. We don't name the issue of systemic racism in, the, in in the report directly, but we do point out to some encouraging efforts by some organizations to identify very, very concrete employment equity barriers. Uh, And yes, we do make some troubling findings when it comes to the representation and inclusion of members of visible minorities inside these organizations. But this question you're talking about, which is training and understanding and fostering even higher sensitivity, this is not something that the report looked at directly. But again, nothing precludes us from doing that in the future.
0: Maybe just to pick up on that, David, in, in terms of your of the findings, I'm drawn to your conclusions. In paragraph 102, you say that levels of underrepresentation for designated groups and rates of harassment and discrimination remain unacceptably high. Can someone walk us through your headline findings in those areas? What we mean
4: when we look at that is that we're not only mentioning The slow progress in terms of uh, eradicating harassment and violence in the Canadian Armed Forces and the RCMP, those are issues that still exist today. And I think that we're hearing more and more about it, as uh, Stephanie mentioned, both within these organizations and then in the case of the RCMP and their interactions with the public. So we're referring specifically to the fact that these issues are still existing in the organizations that have faced the biggest problems. But then we point to the results of the Public Service Employee Survey, and we see that, for example, at CBSA, rates of harassment and discrimination within their organization for all designated groups are higher than the public service average. So there's clearly issues of harassment and discrimination within CBSA. But we also note that in a number of organizations, rates of harassment and discrimination are higher than, in the, than the public service average for women, visible minorities, indigenous peoples, and persons with disabilities. So these problems still exist. They, they exist across the public service, but we've noted here that they exist at a higher rate in many of these organizations. So that's what we mean by unacceptably high. I mean, in a, in a sense, any, any harassment is a problem inside an organization, regardless of the degree of it. But we've found in these, in these organizations in particular that this
0: is, this is a problem that is ongoing. So what's your takeaway recommendation then for organizations to, to go forward?
4: So I think our takeaway recommendations, and, and you'll see our recommendations are quite, I wouldn't say understated, but we look a lot at sort of issues of studies and data collection and analysis. So what we, really, what we really see is that there maybe hasn't been enough attention given to issues of diversity and inclusion in these organizations in terms of understanding first the composition of the workforce, second the barriers that these that designated groups face visible minorities in particular and third sort of the the their experiences within these organizations so sort of how much attention has been given to how these different designated groups feel within their organizations so what we find is that and what we recommend is that more work go into data analysis and sort of inclusion of these groups and better understanding of their experiences within the organizations.
2: And I would add to that, we're looking for, it's very explicit in recommendation number four, Craig, we're looking for a common performance measurement framework. We're looking for comparability. And we can't do that presently, given the way uh, different organizations uh, are or are not acting on these requirements. How they report on them, how they measure them. You know, I don't golf, but people who golf tell me that, Sometimes when they hit the ball, they they yell at the ball in the air for some reason and tell it to sit down on the green. This is a question where we're we're raising the, the profile of getting the, these issues to sit down on the green uh, and to allow the government as a whole in the SNi community to be able to assess and report on how well we are doing or are not doing. So we've had to disaggregate the information that we were getting from different actors in the SNi community. And then see if there was if there was even comparability. And in many instances, there is not. And so one of the things we're recommending to the government is in this particular part of the federal government, in the SNI community, it's, of course, the feds have greater responsibility in so many other areas. But here, pursuant to our mandate, we'd like to see the federal government make progress on measuring, on reporting, uh, and then to be able to say, well, are we improving or not improving? Which is why the committee was pretty firm on saying, we we reserve the right in three to five years to come back to this and say, well, how well have you done? And you haven't improved yet at all. And so we're driving these recommendations as we do with all of our recommendations in our our, uh, annual reports and our reviews. So we remain hopeful.
1: Well, I think we're coming to the end. And what I've enjoyed about this this podcast is the fact that we're recognizing that there's been good attempts and good starts, but there's so much more work that needs to be done in talking about these challenging issues that really are so salient right now in the kind of conversation about law enforcement uh, and and race and and how this is being dealt with. So, uh, you know, it, it sounds to me like you are taking away from this that there are, you know, some ideas about where further research needs to be done, whether it's uh, collecting information on LGBTQ2 uh, Canadians or um, whether, or, you know, how we think about diversity generally and whether it actually practices m- matching what, you know, the government documentation actually spells out. So, you know, I thought this report was good. And and I do hope that this will be something that the committee does come to revisit in the future.
0: Thank you for your time, everyone. This has been a very interesting conversation to start off our series on diversity in the security intelligence community. So that's it for today, folks. And we'll be back with more episodes of this series over the next few weeks this summer, as well as then starting our Muskoka Chair Chats with Charisma Mathen exploring the wonders of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Thanks very much, everyone.